Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for September 18th to 24th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, first we'll take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Alexander Rutherford on B.F. Skinner's appearance on the cover of Time magazine in 1971. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. September 18th. In 1861, Wilhelm Wundt, then an assistant to Helmholtz in Heidelberg, read a paper on individual differences in visual and auditory reaction times to a congress of German scientists. This was the first account of what would become Wundt's physiological psychology. For September 19th, in 1917, the Stanford Revision and Extension of the Binet-Simon Scale for Measuring Intelligence, commonly known as the Stanford-Binet Intelligence Test, was first published. For September 20th, in 1917, behaviorist John B. Watson was ordered from his professorship at Johns Hopkins University and into active military service. Watson went to England to test aviators for the Signal Corps. He irreverently assessed American officers as nincompoops and military service as a nightmare. Despite a near court-martial, Watson was honorably discharged as a major on November 30, 1919. For September 21st, in 1839, psychiatrist John Connolly abolished the use of restraints at the Hanwell County Asylum of Middlesex, England. While humanitarian reforms in mental treatment were well underway by this time, eliminating mechanical restraints of all kinds was a radical and controversial move that made Connolly a prominent figure. Also on September 21st, in 1970, classes began at the California School of Professional Psychology's campuses in both San Francisco and Los Angeles. The California School was the nation's first independent professional school of psychology. And for September 24th, in 1914, John B. Watson's book, Behavior, An Introduction to Comparative Psychology, was first published. And in 1971, Albert Bandura's book, Social Learning Theory, was published. And all during this week in 1904, the International Congress of Arts and Sciences took place at the St. Louis World's Fair. Psychological speakers included a who's who of the young discipline, including G. Stanley Hall, George Trumbull Ladd, James McKean Cattell, James Mark Baldwin, Edward B. Titchener, Edmund C. Sanford, Mary Whitten Hawkins, Pierre Janet, and Morton Prince. On September 20th, 1971, a major figure from psychology appeared on the cover of the popular American magazine, Time. 
The face was that of radical behaviorist B.F. Skinner of Harvard, whose latest book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, was challenging, and more than occasionally outraging, people of all political stripes. In the book, Skinner argued that the cherished concepts of freedom and dignity are illusions that, in the final analysis, lead to far more human suffering than contentment and should be abandoned in favor of a deterministic view of human conduct. Here to talk to us about Skinner and the growth of his public, as opposed to professional image, over the middle decades of the 20th century is Professor Alexandra Rutherford of York University in Toronto. Dr. Rutherford is the author of several articles on Skinner, including A Visible Scientist, B.F. Skinner Writes for the Popular Press, published in the European Journal of Behavior Analysis in 2004. Professor Rutherford, let's start with um, what sort of man B.F. Skinner was, and, and how did he come to psychology, and, and particularly to behaviorism? Okay, well, let me start with what kind of a man Skinner was. Um, there are a number of adjectives, I suppose, that could be used to describe him, um, but I think uh, I'll throw out a couple. One, of course, is single-minded. Um, once he once he became um, a psychologist and a behaviorist, he pretty much uh, pursued that for the rest of his career, despite other changes in psychology. I think he was a pretty determined person, a pretty confident person, and I think that's revealed in some of the early letters that he wrote home to his parents uh, when he um, started being a graduate student at Harvard. He had ideas, and he wasn't afraid to pursue them, and he didn't, he didn't need much encouragement. In fact, um, the received view is that once he got to Harvard, he was pretty much unsupervised, even though he did have contacts with Crozier and the physiology lab, and certainly with Boring at the end stages of his work. But pretty much he, he did his own thing. Um, felt that he was on to something important and, uh, and didn't need much encouragement to pursue it. But he was definitely a product of the progressivist, sort of pragmatic um, tradition in the United States. He was born in 1904 in a small town in Pennsylvania, uh, the son of a self-taught lawyer and a sort of a, a homemaker who was also an accomplished uh, musician, um, and very much kind of a product of that time in American history. Arrived at Harvard with with no background in psychology. He had in fact attended a um, college in, in New York called Hamilton College and had majored in English literature. Spent a year trying to become a writer and in fact that was one thing that he, he realized he couldn't do and began reading very widely. In the course of his reading he ran across uh, Watson and Pavlov. He actually read some Bertrand Russell who had just published an outline of philosophy in which he discussed uh, Watsonian behaviorism. So at the end of his quote-unquote dark year, Skinner decided that he didn't have much to say as a writer about human behavior, but it was a topic that had really um, caught his imagination and decided, therefore, to go off to Harvard to study psychology on the um, advice of a friend who said that Harvard would be a good place to do this. So he showed up and, um, again, uh, sort of under the influence of... Um, Crozier in the physiology lab, um, it, he had become interested in Jacques Loeb and in and, and Francis Bacon, and he sort of forged his own path um, at Harvard and uh, published in 1938 The Behavior of Organisms, in which he explored 
uh, and differentiated between respondents and what Canary Noir is offering conditioning, and and went on from there. All right. So today, Skinner is mainly known for his operant conditioning, primarily with rats and pigeons, and for schedules of reinforcement. But there were forays into the public realm even fairly early in his career. Could you tell us a bit about some of his initial forays into the public realm? Um, sure. Uh, one of the first things that Skinner did um, that wasn't exactly in the public realm, but it was in the applied realm, was, of course, Project Pigeon during, um, during World War II. That, his, his involvement in Project Pigeon didn't come out till a bit later because it was classified material for a little while. But um, basically, he was asked by and got a grant from General Mills to develop a uh, pigeon missile guiding system. So that was one of his first kind of technological applications. But then, um, right after the war, as the story goes, Skinner was uh, at a dinner party. And one of the women at the table was talking about the kind of world that the uh, American soldiers would come home to. And kind of, there was some sort of, you know, utopian talk. And, and Skinner decided that he had some ideas about what kind of world he could envision. And he basically, in 1945, sat down and in a couple of weeks wrote a fictional utopian novel, uh, which he named Walden II. Uh, he, he describes uh, writing it in a, in, a, in a white heat, and it, in fact, it was the only manuscript that he ever wrote, um, uh, I believe, on a typewriter. Everything else he hand-wrote. So he envisioned this utopian community in which the principles of, of positive reinforcement would be used to engender pro-social behavior, um, and, and people would be controlled by face-to-face -face contingencies, it would be a small community, and so on and so forth. Uh, it wasn't published until 1948, but it was, it was reviewed then, and then kind of reaction to it kind of went away until the late 60s. Mm -hmm. And that was because the com communitarian movement, the communities movement of the 1960s um, brought it back to life, so to speak. Uh, some academics, some idealistically minded young people read Walden II and saw in it a blueprint uh, for an alternative to a way of life that they were becoming increasingly dissatisfied with. And so Skinner so, sort of became... Um, an icon of the communities movement, and um, there were several communities formed that you, that were inspired by Walden II, a couple of which still remain in existence today, and those are Twin Oaks in Louisa, Virginia, and Los Arcones in Hermosillo, Mexico. Um, but there were, at the time, in the late 60s, early 70s, literally dozens of communities that sprang up. Some of those communities uh, were started by uh, people who knew Skinner's work from academia and who were academics and behaviorists, but um, the two communities that survived were not actually um, uh, led by or formed by people who were, uh, you know, Skinner academics. Um, they were, and Twin Oaks, of course, was uh, strayed fairly early from its behaviorist roots. Los Arcones, however, remained strictly behavioral. Um, one of the around the same time that he was writing Walden II, Skinner also uh, was inventing something that came to be called the baby box. Mm -hmm. Now he didn't like the term baby box for probably obvious reasons. He called it uh, the air crib, also the baby tender. 
But the birth of the air crib can be traced to a request by Skinner's wife, Yvonne Blue Skinner, that she invent something that would make uh, early childcare easier um, on the uh, eve of the birth of their second child. So Skinner, with his usual technological gadgeteering enthusiasm, figured he could invent a better crib, which is exactly what he did or what he felt he did. Um, the air crib was basically a completely enclosed, glassed-in, temperature and humidity-controlled crib um, in which uh, babies would spend... Uh, the time that they would normally spend in a, in a, in a normal crib, um, but they would not have to wear clothes uh, other than a diaper because the temperature and humidity could be controlled. Uh, on the bottom of the air crib was a canvas that was stretched taut. Uh, when, if the canvas became soiled, it could be rolled out of the crib, and that roll of canvas could be washed only once a week. Um, therefore, saving time uh, that would be spent washing both clothes and bed clothes and so on. Basically, the Skinner was so enthused about this device that he wrote an article uh, that appeared in the Ladies Home Journal in 1945 called uh, Baby in a Box. Not a title that he had chosen, um, but the title nonetheless. And uh, in this article, he introduced the quote-unquote mechanical baby tender. And the baby box then became, uh, was in the public domain and elicited a lot of uh, both positive and negative reactions. One of the things I've tried to do with my work with Skinner is to show that popular reaction, although often presumed to be predominantly negative, uh, and certainly there were lots of negative reactions to Skinner, there was also always an undercurrent of um, in Skinner that was uh, appealing to a certain uh, to certain segments of the American public. So I've tried to highlight both the positive and the negative to provide a more balanced account of how people reacted to him and to try and explain why people reacted in divergent ways. Right. And this is probably a good point to, to note uh, that the baby box was probably the source of the myth, the untrue myth, that Skinner raised one of his daughters in a, in a Skinner box, which is a quite different kind of thing, right? Right, right, exactly. Um, uh, Skinner did use the air crib uh, in raising his second daughter, Deborah, who went on to become um, a fairly successful artist. Uh, she now lives in England. Uh, is married, uh, has no children. But in 1971, a People magazine article appeared in which Deborah defended herself against accusations that she had committed suicide as a result of being raised in a box. Uh, she said, I'm alive and well and living in England, and no, I have not become psychologically disturbed or committed suicide because of being raised in a box. Now, unfortunately, this may have been a conflation with the fate of... Um, John B. Watson's two sons with Rosalie Rayner, who were in fact, um, although they were not raised in boxes, certainly did suffer some psychological um, disturbances, and that has been written about. In fact, one of Watson's sons, James Watson, uh, was interviewed, and his inter this interview was published in the Journal of the History of Behavioral Sciences, in which he discusses his father and um, and so on. His brother. 
I believe, committed suicide. Both of them were in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. So there may be some conflation. Now, as, as time went on, Skinner's position on learning, his, his theory of learning, became a matter of some public concern. And this is rather unusual. No one in the public realm questioned, for instance, Hull's or Tolman's research. Why do you think Skinner in particular attracted such attention? Well, you know, the curious thing is that it wasn't really Skinner's theory of learning that caused so much public concern. It was the application of his theory that caused some concern and his extrapolation of his theory to the realm of human behavior and social philosophy. And this, of course, is most aptly demonstrated in the publication of his 1971 treatise, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, which probably marked the aftermath of that publication, probably marked the apogee of Skinner's uh, role as a public intellectual and also the height of the public controversy uh, around Skinner's work. Um, by 1971, Skinner's, Skinner had become very well known in psychology circles. He published many, many books. Um, Walden, too, had become popular again, as I mentioned, because of the communities movement. And Skinner self-consciously decided to write a book that would extend his ideas to the public, to a wider audience. Um, And he was very concerned about what he saw as uh, a dangerous uh, path towards... um, environmental degradation, nuclear annihilation. He was very concerned with a number of social issues. And he was very um, also he was also very concerned that his ideas were not being taken up in ways that could help society avert some of these problems. So to that end, he wrote Beyond Freedom and Dignity and um, in which he pointed out that it was basically society's refusal to adopt his philosophy, that is, to give up antiquated uh, belief in free will and self-determination that was mm, sort of carrying us on this uh, path towards what he saw, really, as to not overstate it, kind of cultural annihilation. He was worried about the survival of the culture um, in a way that was... um, sustainable, and so on. So he came out and he said, look, everybody has to give up this idea that we've got free will and self-determination. I've got a system that, if implemented, will allow us to engineer pro-social behavior, and our refusal to adopt this technology is um, is leading us astray. So, as you can imagine, trying to tell the public that they should give up uh, their belief in free will and self-determination, especially the American public, uh, was a fairly... Uh, nervy thing to do, mm-hmm. and he got himself into lots of trouble. Now, to me, what is interesting about Skinner is that he reported that he was quite shocked and surprised by the negative reactions beyond freedom and dignity evoked. I find this a little bit disingenuous, but nonetheless, um, it did evoke a lot of uh, a lot of negative reaction. And it was was it the um, publication of Beyond Freedom and Dignity that led to his appearance on the cover of Time magazine in 1971? It was indeed. It was. Uh, he also uh, was asked to make numerous television and radio appearances, uh, which he did. For example, um, he appeared on the Today Show and the Dick Cavett Show. Um, 
he appeared on Buckley's firing line and so on. He wasn't altogether satisfied with many of these appearances, of course, as a, as a scientist who didn't have a lot of experience or, frankly, a lot of interest in being a, quote-unquote, TV star or a celebrity. He uh, usually felt that these appearances were were fairly dissatisfying from his point of view. What do you think the aftermath was of all this scrutiny? Did it ultimately serve the interest of behaviorism to have its public profile raised to such a degree? Or did the public controversy over Skinner, do you think, play a significant role in the retreat of behaviorism during the 1970s and 80s from the dominant position it had once held in psychology? That's hard to answer because the demise of behaviorism, at least within mainstream psychology, is no doubt or was no doubt multiply determined. Um, I don't think it was simply the kind of public outcry against the freedom and dignity that did it. Uh, in fact, you could say that the demise of Skinner's uh, radical behaviorism um, had started somewhat earlier than that um, because of changes and developments with the psychology itself. Uh, within um, cognitive, with the development of, of cognitive science and things of artificial intelligence and so on. So I, I don't know if in the long run it was a good or a bad thing that Skinner had such a prominent um, public presence in this period. Um, I think that it probably didn't help um, behaviorism, or Skinner's behaviorism anyway, um, because there, I think there remains a certain negative bias towards Skinner um, that may or may not be deserved, but people who still practice in the Skinnerian tradition, who now call themselves behavior analysts, um, certainly I think feel pretty marginalized uh, from mainstream psychology and, and fairly defensive about what they do. Um, nonetheless, there are still Skinnerian uh, presence in psychology departments um, around the country, both in Canada and the United States, and increasingly internationally. There's certain radical behavior strongholds in Norway, in, um, and in Central and South America, and certain parts of Europe. So um, mm -hmm. the Association for Behavior Analysis International uh, numbers, uh, in terms of its uh, members in the uh, three or 4,000 range. So there's still a Skinnerian presence, and of course, I think that the, the success of Skinnerian um, psychology lies in its um, ready application, in its, in its status as a behavioral technology. I, and I think that accounts for its um, longevity much more so than, say, the, its philosophy, um, much more so than its um, theoretical contribution. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. We've been speaking with Professor Alexandra Rutherford of York University in Toronto about the events leading up to the appearance of B.F. Skinner on the cover of Time magazine in 1971. Dr. Rutherford is the author, among other things, of uh, A Visible Scientist, B.F. Skinner Writes for the Popular Press, which was published in the European Journal of Behavior Analysis in 2004.
Well, now it's time for birthdays on This Week in the History of Psychology, but we only have two. September 20th, in 1897, Albert Beckham was born. Beckham founded the Psychology Laboratory at Howard University, the first psychology laboratory at a predominantly African-American institution for higher education. His specialty was clinical psychology, and he was active in research, private practice, and consultation. For September 22nd, in 1791, Michael Faraday was born. Faraday's discovery of electromagnetic induction made possible the experimental study of the functional nature of the nervous system and contributed the idea of force fields to Gestalt theory. He also invented the stroboscope. And one more anniversary, that's not a birthday, uh, September 23rd, 1939, is the anniversary of the death of Sigmund Freud. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or York University.